0: Welcome back
1: to the super to joining us
0: today. We have Dr. Ian guy, who probably butchered your last name, I'm so sorry. He's a professor with a PhD in Cambridge at Westminster Theological Sem- Seminary. So, Ian, welcome. How are you today?
1: Thank you. It's great to be with you today.
0: It's good. How do you pronounce your last name? I guess I should have asked you that before we yes. started recording.
1: <laughs> it's tricky. Dug it. A pronunciation. It's actually the Scottish version of do good. So it really is. The etymology really is what it sounds like
0: <laughs> All right, right on. Well, that's super cool um, so Today we're gonna be talking about um, the book of numbers and all these big fun exciting questions going on in the book of numbers We've been doing a series where we're interviewing different scholars on different books of the Bible So now we're in numbers and lots of fun stuff here. Um, so Ian, just before we get into this, do you want to talk a little bit about like Who you are what you do and what got you interested in topics such as numbers?
1: Yeah, so I'm a professor of Old Testaments and uh, Dean of Online Learning here at Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, So I love to show people how the whole Old Testament points forward to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow, as Jesus himself told us in Luke 24. Uh, I got hooked on that my first year in seminary. I was sitting in the basement of this this very building listening to an ancient cassette tape of uh, Edmund Clowney preaching on Psalm 90. And yeah, I said when I grow up, I want to be like that. You know, I want to be able to show people Christ, in the Old Testament, uh, not in a in an artificial way that that, that leaps or drags a text to Christ. Yeah, you know, Spurgeon said that there's a there's a, just as there's a, a, a street in every town in England that leads to a road that eventually gets you to London. So there's there's a route from every text in the the, the Bible uh, to Christ. Um, But sometimes you get the impression that with with Spurgeon, he's not following actual roads. He's kind of dragging his text through the ditch and across the byway. Uh, And, yeah, I I don't want to do that. I want to teach people how to find the right connections to Christ so that uh, people so that the people that they're teaching are trained uh, themselves to know how intuitively to find those connections to Christ. That's 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 my desire and goal to help people preach Christ in the Old Testament.
0: Yeah, that's super cool. Um, I love that so much. So what we're going to do, do now is dive into the book of Numbers. So let's just start off with like the origins of the book. So um, Ian, in your view, where does this book of Numbers that we have in our Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, like where does it come from?
1: Yeah, well, it is part of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, uh, which provides uh, an, an origin account for uh, Israel. Uh, one of my professors once said, if, if, if we didn't have a Pentateuch, we'd sort of have to postulate that there was one. Uh, in mm. other words, no culture has ever existed that didn't have some kind of set of laws, uh, some kind of ideas about where the world came from, some kind of ideas about its own history. Uh, you know, ev- every culture has ideas about those kinds of things. Uh, and so it, it's unthinkable that an ancient people uh, would not have had uh, this kind of collection. Now. We don't have anything exactly like the Pentateuch from other surrounding nations. We have things like parts of it. Certainly we have laws, we have stories, we have origin stories, uh, but uh, uh, the, the concept of all of these things is there in, in the ancient world. Uh, so uh, I believe that the Pentateuch broadly as we have it came from, uh, from Moses, uh, the inspiration of God. Uh, it's a foundational document for Israel as they're about to enter the promised land uh, it recounts their history with God uh, mm-hmm. which is pivotal to understanding who they are. The Lord has brought them out of the land of Egypt He's going to bring them into the land that he promised who did he promise it to? He promised it to Abraham. you know so that story reaching all the way back to Abraham is vital. Uh, did Israel deserve the land? Absolutely not and so the more recent history, of Israel coming out of Egypt by the Lord's grace and mercy, and then repeatedly rebelling against the Lord uh, again is critical to Israel's self-understanding. Uh, mm-hmm. So I would argue again, if we did, you know, if we didn't have something like this from Moses, we'd have to assume that there was something similar that got lost somewhere along the way.
0: Hmm. That's super interesting. So then in your view, Ian, like when we look at like other like ancient Near East, like origin stories or like accounts or things like this, do you see anything like kind of like the Pentateuch in other documents or is it, is this unique?
1: There is obviously overlap uh, because Mm -hmm. we're talking about, we're answering the same questions. Who am I? How do I fit in this world? How is this world organized? Why, why, why is the good? Why is there evil? Uh, why? Why is the world the way it is? So, what you find is that origin stories, and 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 we tend to think of origin stories as belonging to primitive societies, ancient societies, but that's 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 bunk, as Henry Ford would have said. Um, modern people have origin stories. You know, the the theory of evolution functions as an origin story for most people. The average person in the street could not articulate for you an accurate understanding of the of the biological theory of evolution. Uh, what they'll give you is some vague account of how, through some chance process, uh, we're all loosely related to something back there. Uh, and there was no design. There was no purpose. It just is what it is. Uh, and, and that informs the way they think about reality. That's what origin mm-hmm. stories do. Um, in the same way, every nation has origin story. I mean, you think about, uh, about the stories that get told in uh, elementary school about the origins of America in fact you know you talk think about how political that's become now right mm-hmm. I and mean, historically the story that was told about the origins of america was about the the pilgrim fathers in the mayflower right and yet there were other uh, societies earlier in virginia for example why don't those get the same airtime well because the the, the thanksgiving story if you like to put it that way uh sells a myth uh, it sells an origin story in which uh, the the pilgrims and the Indians sat around and ate a meal together and probably played football afterwards. And we're all this big, happy melting pot family. Um, the reason why people want to change that origin story and you know put in uh, other aspects of it that you know you could certainly argue historically uh, equally or more accurate involving Native Americans, for example, is because people want a different self-understanding of who we are. So origin stories, uh, everybody has origin story. You can't exist without an origin story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what your origin story is tells you a lot about who you are. So ancient peoples also had origin stories. Uh, they're different from modern, modern origin stories, but re- they're really answering the same questions. Um, mm-hmm. And And the biblical account, I would argue, is necessarily polemic. Because, that, that, again, that's what origin stories do. Uh, if I accept your origin story rather than my origin story, I've completely redefined my world. So m- you know, my origin story necessarily is against yours. And Israel's origin story is against the origin stories of the nations around them, which are polytheistic, which involve conflict between gods, uh, involve a very low place generally for humanity, uh, created to serve the gods maybe as an afterthought uh, and uh, Israel's origin story has a very high view a high view not just of men but of women. I mean the idea that women as well as men are made in the image of God that's radical in the ancient world. the idea that slaves as well as freemen are made in the image of God that's radical in the ancient world uh, and and so absolutely it's you know there's a polemic going on there. Against uh, a much more hierarchical, structured society in the ancient Eastern uh, visions uh, that involves, yeah, a conflict between the gods and humans, sort of getting uh, trapped in the crossfire. You know, like living in a bad neighborhood of town uh, where you have two different gangs competing over the turf, and, and you you get shot not because they mean to, but just because you're in the way. Well, mm-hmm. that's how humans feature in many ancient. Near Eastern origin stories so different from the biblical creation account.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's super cool, and I love thinking about that. Um, so, like, moving on to like, what's like some of like the main ideas of Numbers, like the Book of Numbers. Like, I always wondered as a kid, like when I was too lazy to read Numbers, and like, was it just like a bunch of numbers in the book? Like, it's like <laughs> what's going on? Um, what's the Book of Numbers about? Is it about numbers? Um, so yeah.
1: Yeah, so, so the, the name uh, Numbers comes to us originally from the Septuagint by way of the Vulgates. Uh, so the Greek translation and then the Latin translation. Uh, and it's not totally inaccurate because uh, the book begins with a census. And a, a census mm-hmm. involves county people. And so yeah. 57,000 of the tribe of, of Abisica and 54,000 of this tribe. Um, the, the Hebrew title, which is the first word of the book, is Bar In the Wilderness. Um, which is, some. I mean, it's a much more engaging title for starters. Uh, and I think is an accurate description of what the book is about. It's about Israel's experience in the wilderness. So having left Egypt, having been brought across the Red Sea, uh, having uh, spent time at Mount Sinai, all of which is recounted in Exodus, having received all of the, uh, the ritual commands uh, that they've received in Leviticus, uh, what next? You know, what took them from that point to the brink of entry into the promised land? Well, that's the book of Numbers. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, yeah, let's not throw away the idea of numbers. You know, people, people react against numbers. You know, th- there are books about, you know, the joy of cooking, the joy of, of, of gardening. I- I've never yet found a book about the joy of accounting. And yeah, I <laughs> apologize to those who account. My sister's an accountant. I, I love accountants. But Most people don't think of accountancy as a work of joy. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet if you get, if you're interested in a topic, there are numbers that go with it, right? Mm -hmm. You're a sports fan, perhaps, you know, Mm -hmm. it's all RBIs and rushing yardage and Mm completion percentage and, you know, three shot, three point shots. Statistics are the heartbeat of sports. Mm -hmm. The same is true of business. Right, you know, earnings indexes and you know all of those kinds of things, and and you know, lest some of the ladies feel I've left them out. You know, whenever there's a you know, I hear of of a new baby being born, I've learned that I need to ask some questions because my wife is going to want to know what did it weigh, how long is it, how long was the labor. You know, if we understand the significance of the stats then they're meaningful to us. And I think the problem in the book of numbers is that most people don't understand the significance of the stats, so it's just a bunch of numbers. And and the stats for a sport you don't get, they're boring. But Mm -hmm. if it's a sport you get, then all of a sudden, yeah, those numbers now are meaningful. And so uh, the challenge is, I think, for us to understand the significance of these numbers Uh, And particularly, you know, these two censuses are a structuring device. Uh, Mm. The Book of Numbers is a story of two generations. Uh, There's the first generation, uh, which comes to the brink of the Promised Land in Numbers 13 and 14. They send the spies to scout out the land, and then they refuse to enter, and Mm. their bodies are scattered over the wilderness. That's that's the story of that generation, and then. Uh, beginning, well, you know, there's there's a crossover between Numbers 21 and Numbers 26, uh, but the second census kind of rounds off and and, and leads you into the second generation, uh, which is the generation that that is about to enter. And and the question is, are they going to be like their fathers, or are they going to be a generation of faith that steps out boldly? Uh, Mm -hmm. And significantly, the story of the second generation is bracketed uh on both sides by mention of Zelophehad's daughters now i almost guarantee that unless you're a bible trivia expert you've probably never mm-hmm. heard of Zelophehad's daughters i haven't <laughs> um, but but interesting people uh Zelophehad was one of the guys in the first generation who died in the wilderness and he didn't have any sons Uh, And and normally uh, in Israel, the sons would inherit and the daughters would inherit through their husbands, right, through getting married. And so, you know, so here's the prospect of had the inheritance that he would have had in the promised land, disappearing because all he has is a bunch of daughters. And so the daughters go to Moses and they say, hang on here, we want some of this inheritance too. And Moses says, well, not up to me, let me go ask the Lord. And so the Lord says, absolutely, give these women a share of the inheritance. Um, Now, what's striking about that is this is before they have conquered a square inch of the promised land. But these women have faith that there is going to be a promised land to inherit, and, and they want to have their share in that promised land. And that, that attitude of faith just brackets that second generation. And so really leaves you feeling hopeful and optimistic uh, about what's going to happen. And of course, you see that in the, in the book of Joshua as they press in and, and take the land. And so two generations then invite us as readers to say, okay, so where do I fit? Hmm. Am I part of the first generation? who came out of Egypt, saw God part the Red Sea, but then lacked faith. And so their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Or am I part of this generation of faith that uh, maybe had not seen as much as their parents had, but they believed God and they acted in faith on that and they saw God answer their prayers? Um, That's the challenge, I think, the book of Numbers uh, gives us, and of course, that's again, that's how the New Testament reads it. You know, you read mm-hmm. Paul in First Corinthians ten; uh, these things that happen in the wilderness, they, they're written down as an example for us. Or you think mm-hmm. of the Book of Hebrews, uh, where uh, by means of Psalm ninety-five, but still thinking about these wilderness wanderings, uh, you know, don't be like those who lacked faith and uh, and died in the wilderness. Uh, be like those who pressed forward in faith and and inherited the the promise that uh, that was given to them so i think that's exactly how the new testament teaches us to read the book of numbers
0: Hmm, that's super interesting. And I think it's always good to think about like the Old Testament, what's going on there in the context of the new. And I appreciate your emphasis on numbers, because it's so true, like in everything we do, like, we are thinking about numbers and stuff. Um, So it's a lot of fun things. And now my next question for you is with regards to like the themes of numbers. Um, So you talked about like God's faithfulness and um, the people coming out of Egypt falling away with of faith and the second generation taking the promised land. Um, What are some of the other key themes or maybe you want to reemphasize those with the book of Numbers?
1: Yeah, well, the book starts out by arranging the people around the, the tabernacle. You know, it gives mm-hmm. us a description of the camp of Israel. And again, this is another of those passages that you find yourself wading through, wondering, why do I need to know who camps where? What, what's <laughs> the point of all that? Um, and again, y- you have to understand what's going on. This is where uh, Jewish commentators often are very helpful because, you know, the rabbis have spent years, centuries, trying to figure out all this stuff. Um mm-hmm. And and one of the things you notice is that, you know, this is not the Knights of the Round Table, where everybody, we're all equal, and it doesn't matter where you sit, you know, you're all in equally honored place. No, there are good places to be in the camp, and there are bad places to be. And the place you want to be, that's to the east, right? So in Hebrew, uh, the east is forwards, uh, and so to the east of the tabernacle, and you see it in the inner circle, that's where the priests are. Uh, the Levites then form the other three sides. Uh, and on the east side, you have Judah and, and the other tribes with him. Uh, not the firstborn tribes. You would have expected Reuben and Simeon. Yeah, Reuben, Simeon, and, and Levi are the thir- first three tribes. And you have to go back to the, the blessing of Judah. Of, of, of Jacob back in Genesis, uh, 48, uh, 49 to understand what's going on here. Um, Reuben sinned. Yeah. Uh, he committed, uh, you know, committed adultery with, uh, Bilhah, his father's concubine. And so he gets judged and demoted from his primary position. Uh, and Simeon and Levi, you remember in Genesis 34, they got involved with that messy situation at Shechem, Uh, where they slaughtered a whole town, having persuaded them to get circumcised, as if they would then become part of the Israelite community, and then they killed all of them because they raped their sister Dinah. Uh, And so they get judged because of that. Uh, And so Simeon, likewise, gets demoted. Now, the case of Levi is interesting. So the judgment on Simeon and Levi is both going to be scattered. Uh, But the Levites then retrieve their situation at the time of the golden calf. They're the tribe that rallies to Moses uh, to exercise the Lord's judgments uh, when Israel has sinned with the golden calf. Uh, and so, so the judgment upon them is mitigated and they become the priestly tribe. They're still scattered throughout Israel, but now they're scattered as a blessing for the people. Uh, and so, so the, the, the top groups are moved out because of the sin of their ancestor uh, and, uh, uh, and Judah, Takes the the the, uh, the the primary place there, which of course is anticipating, uh, you know, what was already, again, already anticipated in Jacob's blessing, that the line of promise would descend through at the line of Judah, uh, and so the way in which the uh, the the tribes are arranged around the tabernacle uh, speaks to to the way that you know sin has consequences. Satan will tell you it doesn't matter if you commit the sin. Until you you committed it, then I'll say, well, you can't possibly repent now. It's, you're way too, way too far gone, right? He's so so sneaky that way. Um, well, sin has consequences, and not just on one generation, but in some cases, multi generations. Um, but grace can also have consequences too. Uh, and it's striking that these tribes that are certainly being judged for their ancestors' sin are not excluded from the people. They're still part of that camp. Gathered around the tabernacle, the place where God is now come to dwell in the midst of His people. So that's where mm-hmm. it starts out. The people gathered uh, around around the tabernacle, <coughs> gathered around the the, the the camp, and then they set out. They they're on the march, uh, and uh, uh, you then see them uh, coming to the point of entry into the promised land. And you know the crucial chapters, chapters thirteen and fourteen, uh, where they send scouts out to check out the land. Uh, you know, they're, they're not really spies. They're, they're not concealing themselves, and, and you know, they're, they're they're scouting out the the territory, uh, and, and they come back with a with a mixed report. Um, they agree that the territory is fruitful and it's good. And uh, what they disagree about is is can we conquer it? And the majority report is no, no. The people are too big. That you know, they're like giants, and we're like grasshoppers. Uh, and we'll never do this. Uh, and then you got Joshua and Caleb saying, of course we'll never do this, but God, right. Mm. Remember the whole Exodus thing. Um, but the people believe the majority and they refuse to enter. Uh, and then, you know, after God has said, okay, then you're going to spend the next 40 years in the wilderness. They say, Oh, well we, we will go in. We will go in. And yeah, that doesn't work too well either. Um, so their unbelief again has massive consequences. You know, you can see a theme emerging there, uh, and uh, and and then the next, you know, several chapters. The issue of leadership um, is becoming prominence. You have Korah's rebellion with Dathan and Abiram, uh, and the question. And, the, and then you have Aaron's Aaron's staff, uh, which buds to to you know to decide which of the families is going to be the priestly uh, family. Um, and then, beginning yeah, beginning really with uh, chapter twenty-one, we start to see a turn towards the new generation. Uh, we start to see the first victory over the Canaanites. Uh, the you know the king of Arad, the Canaanites. He, he's the first victory in that that sign. Uh, and then you start to see things turning around possibly Still, you know, still very mixed. Uh, you still have the you know you still have the, the whole incident with the serpents. Uh, and uh, Moses putting the bronze serpent on the pole uh, again, faith. I mean, you know, he's ha- he's hammering in that message about faith. Uh, a-, a serpent on a pole does you no good unless you look at it, a- and not just look at it, gaze at it. That's that's the Hebrew word. Um, you got to believe, and uh, faith is critical to to being healed by the serpent at that point. And of course, John tells us that that's a foreshadowing, ultimately of. Uh, of Christ, that just as the serpent is raised up on the pole in the wilderness for the people to gaze at and find uh, find uh, salvation from the bites of the serpent, so too Christ is raised up on the cross. And, of course, ultimately, he's the one who crushes the serpent's head, Satan, uh, fulfilling also the promise all the way back in Genesis 3, uh, 15. Uh, so, again, you know, that's a, a stopping off point there. Uh, and then, yes, you move in the second generation uh Again, yeah, there's still unbelief, right? You still have the sin with the Moabite women. Uh, that's kind of the final gasp of that first generation. Uh, and then you move on into the, the second generation as they start to, to occupy the areas in the Transjordan, the east of Jordan, Jordan River, which is not really part of the promised land proper. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, some challenges there. Are people going to settle down there and not press on to the promised land itself. And so there's some negotiation that has to take place there. Um, And then, yeah, the book ends up on the brink of the promised land, waiting for that that signal, as it were, for for them to enter as they will under Joshua. Uh, Joshua and Caleb, the only two of that original generation who will get to enter the promised land.
0: Well, thank you so much. I feel like I just read the book of numbers um, (laughs) with that great summation. Um, So what we do now is I have a couple more questions. And then I saw one question already. If you have a live question, feel free to send that in. We'll do a few at the end. Um, But my next question is, one of the big questions at the Book of Numbers is like, what's the deal with the really large numbers? Um, like a lot of people wonder like, were there really these millions of Israelites who were just wandering in the desert for 40 years? Um, and if like, that's the case, like where's the evidence for that or something like that? Might um, be a worry. Yeah. So how would you kind of answer this question?
1: Yeah, that's that's a good question. It, it, it's one that people have really wrestled with and, and it's not just in the Book of Numbers. You have the same thing to some extent, the Book of Kings, particularly also in the Book of Chronicles um, you know, so a book of Chronicles in one place, Jehoshaphat's army uh, is, you know, is, is listed and, and he's attributed with over a million soldiers in the city of Jerusalem. Um, now, you know, the, the, the current U.S. army, entire U.S. army is, I think, about five hundred, six hundred thousand 600,000 men. So mm-hmm. the idea that in, in the small kingdom of Judah, King, you know, King Jehoshaphat had that many soldiers in one place it, I mean, yeah, God can do remarkable, miraculous things, but yeah, that that doesn't seem quite right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it, that's a hard, you know, hard thing to make sense out of. And and, and there's nothing in the text that suggests that there's something miraculous here. This is God's blessing upon Jehoshaphat, um, but it, it it looks like it's a sort of ordinary blessing. Um, now, in, in in that case, I think one way we can make sense out of this is is by comparing it to some of the Uh, the Assyrian annals, you know, uh, Chronicles is written after the exile. So you're writing in a context in which uh, people are very familiar with other ancient Near Eastern uh, annals, which have a habit of uh, hyperbole. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, you know, in the Assyrian annals, you have a victory, which, you know, you have massive, uh, you know, massive army defeats the opposition comprehensively, takes enormous amounts of spoil, and does really devious and nasty things to their opponents. Um, and then you have uh, small victories in which the, you know, the, the great king uh, defeats the, the, the local rival, but for some reason he decides not to do anything to him. He just leaves him in place and moves on to the next town. We would score those as defeats, right? But if you're writing the Assyrian annals, unless you want to be, have your body parts divide amongst the empire, that's not how you write them. Right. So in a context like that, uh, accurate numbers could miscommunicate. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, because if you say, you know, if you give an accurate number, then people interpret that as, you know, OK, so his army was two men and a blind dog uh, because we all know how this works. Right. So I think in in the case of Chronicles, I'm I'm pretty confident that what we have here is is a literary phenomenon of of hyperbole. Mm -hmm. And, and the thing about hyperbole is that, that it means you to get the impression that this is something really big, right? Mm. When I say I had, you know, there were millions of people who came, you know, who came into my office, you know, because the new semester started. I don't literally mean there were millions of people. What I want you to go away with thinking is there were a lot of people. Now, if I say there were ten people, maybe you don't go away with that feeling. You know, you say, "Oh, maybe that's normal. Maybe normally you have twenty people." Um, so, so hyperbole works when you say, "Boy, that's a big number, right?" And I think that's exactly what's going on in Chronicles. Boy, that's a big number. Joshua has a big army because God is blessing him because of you know, and that that's the right interpretive method. There. So whether it, yeah, you know, whether it's a literal number or a hyperbolic number, the significance is the same. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's trickier in the case of uh, numbers. It's not so obviously the case that, you know, that you have similar kinds of writing that does that. But I think it's possible that we have something similar going on here. Um, Again, I I don't want to push that. And, uh, you know, if people want to argue, no, those are literally the numbers of people they had. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to push back on that. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, I do think that it's possible uh, that uh, uh, there's something hyperbolic going on in in, in some of these numbers. Um, there are other ways in which people have interpreted them. Uh, you know, people have interpreted number of thousand as being uh, representatives of a military unit, for example, rather than a, an absolute number. And just like uh, a Roman centurion, you would expect to be over a hundred soldiers, right, a century. Mm-hmm. But in practice we know that they were of much smaller groups you know potentially a thousand there is has a military signification of like a brigade um which could be much smaller that works i think in some contexts it doesn't work everywhere um so I, there are a number of ways in which people approach these um I, i'm not particularly pressed to feel like i need to answer all those questions mm-hmm. um i think it's you know the, sometimes uh, ancient texts use numbers differently from the way we do. Um, and yeah, you know, it, it's, it's kind of arrogant for us to say, well, you need to use numbers the way we do because that's the right way. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah, you think so, but other cultures use numbers differently. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's possible that in some of these texts, numbers are being used differently. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we need to, to, to wrestle with the text, trying to figure out how the text is using those numbers.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting and helpful to think about, um, like, are these numbers little? Are they symbolic? Well, you know, we can make our best guess, but there's room for argumentation on both sides of the the debate. So my last question for you then, um, Ian, before we get a little bit of Q&A, is how does numbers fit into the larger story of Scripture? I know you talked earlier about just being passionate about um, seeing how roads point to Christ in the Old Testament and whatnot. Um, So in your view then, like, how does numbers fit into, like, the bigger story of what God's got going on?
1: Right. Well, if you, if you start in the beginning, always a very good place to start, right? You have creation. God makes this perfect world for humanity, and then we ruin it all, right? You have the fall, Adam and Eve, sinning, and the world is broken. Uh, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, and And for the next several chapters in Genesis, we are floundering. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, Cain kills Abel. You got a flood. You got the Tower of Babel. Even humanity working together with all of that technology can't make their way back to God. And then God does something new. God is creating a people for himself in Abraham. And uh, and a people need a land. So the land is always part of the promise. Uh, and land needs people. So the people and land need to go together and, and people and land living under God's blessing. Uh, So that's God's goal in the Pentateuch is working out this promise uh, to create a people who will be a kingdom of priests who will live on his blessing and will inherit the land. But it's never simply about real estate in the Middle East. Uh, And you can see that from the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Shelters might be a better uh, name for it, Uh, because that's the feast every year when the Israelites were to camp out. Right now, they don't. Celebrate this feast while they're living in the wilderness because they're camping every day. You don't need to pretend to camp for a week when you're camping every day, right? You celebrate this feast once you've entered the land. And every year you go and you leave your comfortable house with your comfortable furniture. And, you know, I've never understood camping. You know, I, I have a ice bed. I have air conditioning. I have running water, hot and cold running water. I have a yeah. cooking stove. Why would I leave that to go and lie on the ground in the mud like an animal, right? Um, and yet God instructs his people to go and live in these shelters one week every year. Why? To remind themselves that even after they've inherited the land, they have not inherited the land. There's still more to this. There's a heavenly land uh, that the earthly land was only ever typological of. Uh, and so they're always looking forward to this, this greater land that, that God has promised. Uh, and then this, yeah, Israel as is a kingdom of priests. They're supposed to be a holy nation. But as the book of Numbers clearly shows us, they're not that holy. Uh, they keep getting themselves into trouble. And if there's a better generation at the end of the book of Numbers, well, it's not going to be long before we're in the book of Judges and we're going right down the tubes again. Um, the message of, it, of the Old Testament is that Israel cannot cut it as a righteous nation. She cannot be a light to the Gentiles, as the prophet Isaiah Uh, anticipates. She's not the servant of the Lord uh, that can bring redemption. We need another Israel who's going to come and fulfill God's promises. And that, of course, is how the Gospels introduce Jesus. Uh, So Matthew's Gospel, uh, you know, you start out with baby Jesus going down to Egypt, uh, chased there by a king who's murdering infants. What's going on here? Jesus is reenacting the story of Israel right? That's why Matthew quotes Hosea. You know, lots of scholars say, what's Matthew doing quoting Hosea? Out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea's talking about Israel. Yes, Jesus is the new Israel. What happens next in Israel's story? Well, there's the parting of the Red Sea, a judgment event involving water. What happens next for Jesus? He's baptized by John. Judgment event involving water. What happens next for Israel? 40 years in the wilderness. 40 days, 40 nights of Jesus out in the wilderness where he faces exactly the same temptations that Israel faced. Only he passes the test that Israel Mm -hmm. failed. Jesus comes as this new Israel to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, He fulfills the law. He is the one who's born under the law in order to keep the law because God demands not no record from us, but a perfect record. It's not Mm -hmm. enough for Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. That's important. It's critical, right? Because he's got to wipe away our sins. He's got to atone for our sins. But first he's also got to create this perfect of, it is perfect record of righteousness as the new Israel, which he now gives to us. And so that that's how he is divine, right? Divine throughout the Old Testament. What's the vine? It's Israel. John 15, Jesus says, I am fine. and And, Who are we? We're the branches. We get engrafted into this new Israel as we're united to Christ. Uh, And so we get included in this story as we're united by faith uh, to Christ uh, and to become part of this new Israel now made up of Jews and Gentiles alike, uh, united together in Christ who ultimately God will bring into this heavenly promised land that fulfills all of the promises that he made back in the beginning. And so hmm. how does numbers contribute to that? Well, our situation is, right, the Hebrew says, is entirely analogous. We've, our exodus has happened, right? You know, John, uh, Jesus is talking about that with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke 9, the exodus that he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem, his cross hmm. and his resurrection is the exodus. Uh, and, and we're living between that exodus and the, the entry of the promised land. And so mm. our calling, like those people in the book of Numbers, is to exercise faith in the midst of a wilderness, a desert. You know, This is not your best life now. This is your wilderness life now. That's mm. what our expectation should be as Christians. But there is a glorious inheritance that God has stored up for us in Christ in the heavenly realms. And he has blessed us in, in him uh, in the heavenly realms and he will not leave us until he's finished what he's begun in us
0: Mm. i love thinking about that and like the metaphor with like us being in the wilderness in a sense like that's really good um so i appreciate that what we'll do now then ian is we'll go to a little bit of q a um so we'll do about 10 or 15 minutes of q a so if you have questions feel free to put those in um so the first one here is from slam rn and says um referring back to the numbers we were talking about um, would these large numbers make sense in base 60s? I think this may be getting at like the symbolic numbers kind of idea here, Ian. Um, so what do you think?
1: Yeah, so uh, Babylonian systems were base 60. Um, and and this, this, you know, we, we're so used to base 10 that it makes sense to us, right? It's easy to mm-hmm. add and subtract. Of course, base 60 has some advantages when you're dealing with angles. Um, so when you're doing, you know, dividing up circles and all of those kinds of things, so, yeah. know, so uh, Babylonians were really smart with the numbers. A- again, there are some places where it, it, it does seem that some of those numbers might be uh, base 60, uh, but not everywhere. I don't think that solves all of our problems, but it's certainly, again, the reason that that's, that's, that's uh, worth trying is because we know that there were other ancient number schemes that worked on a base 60 system. Uh, and so it's, it, it's, it's plausible that, uh, that, that Moses and other biblical writers would have been familiar with that uh, and, and would, have, you know, would have adapted or adopted that. So it's definitely worth trying. And there are places where people have suggested that that makes sense out of some of the numbers.
0: That's weird. I just like thinking about doing like a base 60 with numbers. That's just like me and my Americanism is just like so in- counterintuitive. I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, how does that even work?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, ancient people did some remarkable mathematics. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, wow. we we, we, assi- we assume that the Greeks invented a lot of the stuff, you know, Pythagoras. Pythagoras was derivative. You know, the, the, the more people have discovered, the more they become aware of the fact that th- there was a lot of complex mathematics. And, of course, you need that in order to build stuff. You know, mm-hmm. they, they were not doing this just for fun. Uh, mm-hmm. They were doing this because in order to construct The buildings that they they, they, they wanted to build, they needed to have the mathematical tools to be able to do that. Uh, Yeah, and as I said, you know, uh, I mean, 360 degrees. That that that's a lousy number to do stuff with in base 10. (laughs) Yeah, but in base 60, then yeah, yeah, you got all those multiples. It all works really easily.
0: Man, I feel like people just have this picture of people like back three thousand, four thousand years ago. These like crazy goat herders who had no idea what they were doing, and that's just like not even close to the truth. And that's something I've been learning a lot recently. Like, these
1: Absolutely, are really yeah. Well, and and uh, just the uh, most recent uh, issue of uh, Biblical Archaeological Review. Uh, there's new evidence of of the earlier date of alphabetic writing than we previously thought. Oh wow! Uh, back all the time to around the time of Moses, interestingly hmm. enough. Uh, wow. and evidence that it, it originates out of an adaptation of, of hieroglyphics. Um, wow. So, you know, I mean, 50, 100 years ago, people would say, well, of course Moses couldn't have written the Pentateuch. Nobody wrote in those days. Well, hmm. actually, we're discovering the, the, there was a lot more writing going on and, and alphabetic writing at an earlier point than hmm. previously thought. You know, it, it, we shouldn't assume that just because we haven't found evidence for something yet that there isn't evidence for it yeah we've dug up so little of what's there and of course yeah. so little has been preserved of what was originally there uh yeah. that's that it's it's really risky to assume that because we we don't have knowledge of something that it it didn't exist belshazzar is a great example right in daniel 5 king belshazzar who had the feast uh, for a long time, people thought, "Well, that's an obvious error by the Bible because we know the kings of of Babylon. We know the last king of Babylon was Nabonidus, and and he was ruling when uh, the the Medes and the Persians took over. So Belshazzar obviously made up fictional character. And then, just uh, you know, a, a few decades ago, we dug up a few more cuneiform tablets. And uh, we discovered that Nabonidus had a son, and his name was well the Babylonian equivalent of Belshazzar, uh, mm-hmm. and and he was co-regent with Nabonidus during some of Nabonidus's travels. So now all mm-hmm. of a sudden, it's it's perfectly reasonable to uh, to have somebody called Belshazzar having a feast right at the very end of the of the the, the era of the Babylonian Empire, um, and uh, what people used to say was impossible now. Yeah, we, we know exactly how that's happened. That, that doesn't solve all of our problems. There's still plenty of challenges in, in uh, exploring the Bible and things where you think, I, I don't know what to make out of that. Um, mm. But of course, that's not unique to the Bible. I mean, that's unique to every aspect of history, even more recent history. Often, we don't know everything we'd like to know. Um, and so why would it be surprising that when it comes to ancient history, uh, we don't necessarily have background sources that give us everything we'd like to know.
0: Mm, Yeah. Lots of great stuff to think about there. Um, We have a question from the computer theist, which says, um, how do you explain Numbers 31 where Moses orders his soldiers to execute young boys and take um, virgin women as slaves? Um, So pretty serious stuff here. Um, So what are your thoughts? Yeah.
1: Yeah, So this principle of harem warfare, total destruction warfare, uh, people often assume that that's, that's throughout the Old Testament. It's not. Uh, it, it's very targeted, uh, and it's targeted to the conquest of the promised land. Uh, when Abraham is told in Genesis 15, it's not yet time for you to enter the land, uh, the reason is very specific. The sin of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, mm-hmm. there's coming a point at which the sin of the Amorites will be full, and at that point, uh, you know, the the judgment destruction will come. And it, and it comes as a foreshadowing of the final judgment. I think that's that's how we need to understand kind warfare. But in the same way that Noah's flood wipes out everybody and everything, uh, so too, when the Israelites enter the land, they are instructed to wipe out everyone and everything within the land, right? Not outside the land. You know, they're not to wipe out anybody and everybody they meet, uh, just mm-hmm. specifically within the land because the sin of the Amorites is full. It's time for a token judgment right? A partial judgment uh, to demonstrate that God is absolutely serious about judging sin. Uh, One of the the reasons we have problems with this is because we have a problem with God being the judge. Uh, And uh, God is the judge, and he will judge, and uh, he has the right to judge people whenever and however he chooses. Um, So Israel is supposed to, wipe out people in that. In fact, it, it actually doesn't happen very often. There's, uh, there's only three places um, in within the Promised Land that, that experience this kind of warfare, which is um, uh, Jericho, Ai, and Chatzor. Um Other places don't uh, receive this judgment, and of course that then comes back to haunt Israel because the inhabitants of the land lead them astray, which is another aspect of, of God's purpose in Instructing them to uh, to cleanse the land in this way, um, yeah. So, in terms of of you know the, the the more general situation of you know what what do you do with prisoners of war, right? The, um, again, there's 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 an assumption. From modern part, our our rules of warfare are you know are humane. Well, okay, so who who made you God to give you the right to say that, right? Um, It's not always been that way. Um, People didn't have prisoner of war camps, uh, and uh, so enemies uh, were killed, uh, and that Mm -hmm. happened broadly. Uh, And then it might seem humane. You know what, what? What do you do with 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 women and children? If you, you know, if you don't kill people, you just leave them there to die. I mean, that's that's not humane either. And so, one solution for uh, you know for women who are not to be killed was to take them either uh, as servants, uh, slaves, you might say, uh, or as as uh, wives potentially. Um, and uh, you know, again, that's not the way. We would do things, um, but uh, the, there is a you know there is a rationale within that within the uh, what God is 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 up to with His people there.
0: Mm. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, we probably have time for one more question. Um, so we have a question from Wesley, which says on the topic of archaeology, do you know of any interesting finds that coincide with the Book of Numbers?
1: Well, uh, one of the oldest piece of writing that we have, not as old as the 15th century, but, well, the oldest piece of writing that we have is is an amulet uh, from, I think, around the time of Hezekiah, so around the 8th century BC, which contains a copy of the Priestly Benediction, which is in number six, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, um, and, and, and clearly somebody had written that, and then they carried it around their neck. Now, was that is that a sign of faith? Is it a you know was it a lucky charm that they were you know using it in the wrong way? We we don't know, um, but it is fascinating that you know that clearly that that priestly benediction was you know, was well known at that point, uh, and that people were writing it and carrying it around. You know Moses uh, was in, uh, instructed the people to 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 write scripture and carry on your foreheads and on your wrists, and later Jews took that literally. Um, So maybe this is an early example of taking that literally. And yeah, if you're going to write a a passage of scripture and hang it around your neck, I mean, the modern equivalent would be to tattoo it on yourself somewhere, I guess. Um, That's a pretty good one to choose, I would think. Uh, You know, the Lord's. Again, yeah, we, we started off talking about the difference between Israel's origin story and other ancient Near or Eastern origin stories. No other God goes to a people and says, I wanna bless you. Yeah, here, yeah, have my blessing. The other ancient recent stories are all about how you trick a blessing out of the God who really didn't wanna give it to you. Um, but if you're smart enough, if you have the right connections, you have the right priest, you can get a, ble- you can get a blessing out of him somehow. Uh, Israel's God isn't like that. He goes to Aaron. He says, "This is how you bless the people. Do this regularly because they're going to need. They need to know that my favor shines upon them. I love these people, in spite of that their messiness and their sin. Uh, and I'm going to redeem them as a people for myself." Hmm.
0: Well, Ian, I want to say thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this conversation and just thinking on all these things with you. Um, do you have any kind of like last thoughts, things you didn't get to say before we wrap things up here?
1: Well, I hope this encourages people to actually read the Book of Numbers for themselves. <laughs> um, it, it's it's a fascinating book, uh, and you know if you if you need more help, I've I've written a a, a very accessible commentary in the Preach the Word series on Numbers. Uh, it, you know, you don't need a PhD in order to read it. It's not complicated. It's essentially a series of sermons, but it will help you to get a lot more out of this book.
0: Hmm. Well, that's awesome, and I encourage people to go check that out. Um, and Ian, thank you so much for your time. It's been so much fun. And to Wesley and the Bottom Line Dad and the Computer Theist and everyone else who joined us, thank you so much for tuning in today to Tear and Apologetics. If you're new, I always encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, and all those things. And if you enjoy the channel, you can go become a patron right now at patreon.com, slash I should hear apologetics. Um, to start is as little as a dollar a month, so your support means a lot. But Ian, thank you so much for your time. It's been so much fun. I uh, really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you. I've enjoyed it too.
0: And thank you everyone for tuning in. Have a good one and God bless.